Morning, church. Uh, my name's Isabel, and I'll be doing the first Bible reading for us. Uh, the first reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, and you can find that on page 227. Um, if you're wondering, I'm not reading a different version. My eyes are too old to read the little Bible. <laughs> um, as you find chapter 17, a reminder that last week uh, we read of who God chooses to be his next future king. Um, and in a surprising twist, rather than choosing the oldest son in Jesse's family, he chooses the youngest one, David. Uh, in the second half of that chapter, that we also saw that as God's spirit comes upon David, his spirit leaves Saul. And so in chapter 17, we come to one of the most famous accounts um, of God's people in the Old Testament. So I'll be reading chapter 17, starting from verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came, and every morning and evening, he took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. 
He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Pina, and the second reading comes from the book of John. So it's John 3, verses 22 to 33, and it's found on 862. So it's John 3, verses 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising in Aenon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Let us in prayer. Our Father God, we do come before you humbly, knowing our need of help as we consider your word. Uh, Please send your spirit that we might not only understand your word, but you might give us hearts to change and be obedient to it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
One of the things my parents did recently was uh, clear out under their house. Now, they've lived in this place for, I don't know, 40 years or something. You can imagine the amount of stuff that just gets chucked under a house over that period of time. And admittedly, some of it was mine. So out came a box with my name on it. And, you know, there were books from kindy and early days. I'd written epic tales of the pet mouse escaping or staying at grandma's. But there were also in this box trophies, a whole lot of trophies that I'd won from being on sporting teams, normally team sports where you win by having the best players on your team to win the trophy for you. And these trophies were there and brought back memories, obviously, of these games and matches and grand finals, things that I'd taken so seriously at the, at the time. You know, I remember it would dictate my mood for days and weeks, these, the outcome of these competitions. But looking back, when I'm seeing these plays and looking back, I think, that is so irrelevant now. And I consider now life as an adult and the sort of responsibilities that I have or how whether I win at something now, influence has such a bigger impact. Many people will be impacted. The outcome will go will last a lot longer. Uh, well, those, those plastic trophies have lasted a long time. But it seems a lot more important that I win at what I'm doing now compared to when I was a five or six-year-old. Now, I'm not a professional athlete, just to clear that up. Obviously, it can be a mistake. But I'm referring uh, here just to the... I guess we face different competitions in life, whether we, I don't know, do our best to avoid them, whether we resist it, or whether we're someone who feeds off competition, life is constantly pitting us against other people. Uh, in the workplace, we will face competition. A small business owner knows the importance of maintaining the competitive advantage. You might be in a company or a, you might have worked for a business that goes through a restructure, which often means job cuts. And all of a sudden, people that are on your team, you're now competing with. Early in the year, I, I was tired, like really tired. And I just assumed it was because I have four kids. But there was actually an underlying health issue that was going on. Uh, we often use the phrase about the battle to stay healthy. Or in a room this size, I'm sure there'll be people familiar with the fight against cancer. We use this kind of terminology and language. Because our competition doesn't have to just be out there, external to us. It can also be internal and not just health. We might face a struggle to do what is right, to do what we say, or to say to people what we think. The struggle to turn something off, or put something down, or even just to get to sleep at night. What are the struggles that you face? Where is the competition that you feel? That's probably not going to be a game, isn't it? you know, on the sports field where you get a trophy or an online kind of... But some of those things can be pretty epic and intense, I know. What is it, though, that you really need to know about in life to make sure you're putting your energy and effort where you need it? Where's the real competition? What can you let go? What should you be letting go of? And where should you be directing your attention and effort? We only have a limited amount of it. What is it you need to be concerned about? and really fight for. Even just this past week, if you think about it, 
how much of what you have struggled with has been well-directed energy? And how would you know? The context of our passage today, of uh, John chapter 3 here, has the threat of competition in it. For a number of weeks, as you've been reading through John's gospel, we get to this point now, we're continuing with the story of Jesus, but he's been introduced as the eternal word of God, not created, but sent from heaven as the word of God, the son of God. The writer is showing us how all the Old Testament promises are pointing forward to this person of Jesus, how he is fulfilling them. He's giving signs. Jesus is showing signs of this being true. He's turned the water into wine. Uh, He cleared out the temple. And now at the end of chapter 3 here, John the Baptist, who's been sent before him to prepare the way for Jesus, finds himself in competition with him. So to help you see where we're going today, I think our Bibles break it up helpfully into the three paragraphs there that we'll be looking at. So the first paragraph will set the scene. It's the context of the competition. Then the second paragraph, if you've got the Bible there on page 862, you might find it helpful. Second paragraph from verse 27 is about the context of the created. And the final paragraph, verse 31, is the context of the Son. That's where we're heading, the context of competition, the context of created, and the context of the Son. So our story starts there in verse 22. So we continue following Jesus. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. And the potential for conflict is introduced in the very next verse. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now, we're introduced to John, likewise back in chapter 1. We know a bit about him. It was made clear that his role was one as preparing the way for the Lord. He's not God's Messiah. He's not the promised Savior. He was sent to get people ready to receive him. And so part of this work was calling on people to repent and uh, doing baptism as he's doing here. But it's in this group with John that an argument comes up, maybe a heated discussion, we would say, uh, around this idea of ceremonial washing. It's tricky because we're not giving the details as to exactly what that might have been about, but it leads to the problem of verse 26. The trouble of verse 26, John's disciples aren't happy uh, with the... Well, they feel threatened... Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing. Everyone is going to him. You can see the exaggeration, I think. That everyone is going to him. This is kind of what happens when we're threatened by something, isn't it? Animals have the instinct, throwing out the feathers, standing up tall, exaggerating your height. That's what we do in response to a threat. You know what ministers do? I probably shouldn't, I'm a guest, I'm a visitor, so I can say this sort of thing. But when we're threatened, like we're put in a crowd, we will just sort of, we exaggerate out the size of our church. Just give a few more numbers than what it really is, and that way we feel a bit more respectable. John's disciples are trying to get his attention here. They they exaggerate the threat this other guy that's opened up a baptism stand just down the river there has, has created for them. He's baptizing, everyone's going to him. Can't be. We know it's not true. Why are they there at Elanir Salim? Because they needed plenty of water. 
point. Or John's got followers, they're not all going to Jesus, but in the face of this new threat to his ministry, his followers want him to do something. The scene is set for his reply. In this next section, one of the things he does, I think we've seen his reply, is the importance of knowing your competition. Probably all experience this if you try and watch a game, watch some sort of match where you can't tell who is on whose team, that's a disaster. I know some people design games where you have an assassin or a mole or a traitor in there, and the game is to try and work out who is that person, who is the competition. There's a reason why we have team uniforms and national flags, and you need to know who's on your side and who's going to be against you. What does the coming of Jesus mean for John the Baptist? Is it a signal to start looking at a different industry? John the baker, John the butcher. The next two sections are in response to this perceived threat, called the competition that Jesus, and it gives two, I think, standout responses. Two responses we can use to evaluate what kind of competition Jesus poses. So the first of these paragraphs from verse 27 John's reply, and he responds by giving the context of the created. The context of the created, verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. We can only do what we can do. As those created by God, we receive from God. We only to do what's being given to us. So let's get our context right, that we are created. Now, this isn't some defeatist, younger sibling kind of attitude from John that he's putting on here. We're reminded, actually, what's happened earlier in the gospel. There's, this, uh, there's a powerful rhetorical technique you can use um, where you get other people to repeat what you have said. Rather than say it again yourself... It's much more powerful if you get the class to repeat or the student or the child or the disciple to tell you what it is that you said earlier. Here he is. Verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I've already said that I'm not the Messiah, I'm sent ahead of him. John's always been clear. He is not the Messiah. He's not God's promised Savior. He's preparing the way for him. It'd be a massive mistake to think that John saw... Jesus is a competition to his ministry or his work. And he gives a wedding illustration just to emphasize this point, to help us understand it. Now, weddings are usually great occasions. I know Stephen shared a few weeks ago about his wedding, but I was there. I didn't find it boring. So it was an excellent occasion. Weddings are usually great occasions. Um, over the years, I've married a number of women. As a minister, I marry people quite often. Frequently, couples are married. Uh, I've been in bridal parties. I've been the best man. But none none of those are about me. Weddings aren't about the priest or the preacher or the parents or the flower girls or whatever. It's about the bride and the groom, isn't it? You've probably witnessed some disaster weddings and speeches where people thought it was about, you know, they said too much awkward, embarrassing, for every, hopefully not at your wedding, but it can be bad. In all my wedding experiences, though I have to say, I've never witnessed the best man 
try and take the place of the bridegroom. That would be awkward. Right? That's a disaster if the best man tries to put himself forward. So, no, their role is to make sure everything is as wonderful and joyful and as amazing as it is for their friends, for their bride and the groom on that day. And John relates his role to being like that, the friend at the wedding. To suggest Jesus' coming is a threat or competition to John is to miss the point entirely. Because John's context is one of the created. And when Jesus comes, well, he's not the competition. John says he is like the bridegroom on that wedding day. In case we didn't get the point, the conclusion makes it really clear what needs to happen in verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. I think if we've understood John's context correctly here as being like the best man at the wedding, obviously this makes sense. Jesus will continue to increase in significance. He will become more and more important as John becomes less and less. Keep coming along to hear how that plays out in this series as we keep looking through John's gospel. It's no accident that John uses the illustration here of the wedding because it picks up again on promises of God from the Old Testament about coming to be with his people and be like married to his church the bride if you're looking at this during the week that'll be an area to explore further jesus isn't the competition for john the baptist in fact in verse 29 we read that he's the source of his joy so we'll come back to that a bit later that idea the disciples obviously have a wrong view of jesus in that first paragraph somehow they feel threatened by him and the implications of his ministry but how can they feel one way and john feel so differently the disciples obviously have missed something haven't they john the baptist concludes he must become greater i must become less they've what is it they've missed we get that we can get that something in the final section from verse 31 where we see the context of the sun the one who comes from above is above all the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth the one who comes from heaven is above all there are a few things in life more painful than listening to someone talk about something they have no idea about I'm optimistically hopeful that's not today i mean if it went on about food much longer maybe it would have been but it... <laughs> well, i can't talk to you about life in india i I've never lived in India. I have not visited India. I wasn't born there like your minister here. I don't know the languages. I don't know the humour. I don't know Indian accents. I can't cook Indian food. I can't talk about life in India. How much less the things of God? How much less can I speak of heaven? No matter where I look or what I experience, I'm limited in the very same way as every other part of creation, bound by our time and our space and our limited understanding, knowledge. My origins are from earth. But consider if someone did come from heaven and live among us, external to creation. But as you heard back at Christmas, scandalously, coming to live among us 
he would make God known. And if that's the case, that would be so far above us, we'd want to emphasize, we'd write it twice in the run verse 31. This one who comes from above is above all. This is the unique context of the Son, the Son of God. If you've missed the earlier parts of John's Gospel, chapter 1 is where we first hear about Jesus, the Word of God becoming flesh and living with us, sent by God the Father to speak the words of God, to reveal God in all His fullness and truth and grace. The one on whom the Spirit remains. So we read here that the Father has placed everything in the hands of the Son. These statements, like in verse 35, they are all inclusive. The Father loves the Son, has placed everything in His hands. So the Son is unique in His uniqueness. There is no competition with Him. And He's able to reveal God to us, to testify to what He has seen and heard, because that is His context. He speaks the words of God. And although verse 36 makes massive claims, I think it makes sense in light of the context of the Son. So I read verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That would be a ridiculous statement if you hadn't first heard our context as created and the context of the Son, that He is from above, from the Father, sent by the Father with everything in His hands. So the hinge point of life is found in the person of Jesus. Before heading into church ministry, I worked as a physiotherapist. I spent some time working at Westmead Hospital with a... uh, a guy, Andrew Beto, some of you might know, working there together. One of the things I really loved about working as a, as a physio was having a real impact in the lives of people. You would see big changes. The first couple of days and weeks after a stroke, the rehabilitation that happens there has a massive impact on that person's function and well-being. Will they be able to walk again? Will they be able to return home to where they came? How will they go on step? Will they be able to feed themselves All these things, you can see massive changes in a person's life and have a really significant impact. But they're of limited value compared to the significance of receiving Jesus. Because verse 36 talks about eternal life, being at peace with God, forgiven, or wrath and rejection and under the judgment of God. Now, I don't say these things lightly or to try and scare you and emotionally manipulate you. Just to recognize this, this is part, this is our context as, as the created. As a health professional, no one benefits from hiding the truth, from keeping the truth hidden from people. I was treating a lady once, you know, she was having weakness in her legs, she was tripping over a bit and legs giving way at times. She wasn't responding to the treatment I was giving. I thought, no, there's something hidden here. I wrote a letter with my finding signs, sent her back to the doctor. I needed more scans. She came back to another doctor, said, just keep going. I said, no, this isn't right. So I wrote another letter and said, please get a second opinion, see another doctor. 
Thankfully, she did as she went and got scans and there was a tumour on her spine, which, once removed, quickly recovered her function and she, she, she was healed. But no, there wouldn't have been any benefit to this lady if the truth had remained hidden. If I pretended nothing was wrong, not to hurt her feelings, you just keep going along with things, say nothing. But it's important that you hear that those who reject the Son are under the wrath of God. There isn't a neutral zone that people can exist in or just wait out and see. Verse 36 is clear in how it ends, that God's wrath remains on them. It's already there. All of us are there, except by the gift of, well, receiving eternal life through belief in the Son. That is the way to eternal life, through believing in the Son. Obviously, that raises the question of what is belief? What does that mean? What does that look like? This is a great theme running through the gospel. It'll come up time and time again. But let's have a go at understanding it just from our section, from our little passage that was read today. I think we get an idea of what it looks like from back in verse 30. As John says, He must become greater. I must become less. You cannot say that statement, I think, unless you are willing to humble yourself before Jesus. And make him your Lord. You can't say that in your heart unless you've recognized the unique context of the Son of God sent by the Father to rescue his people. So he must become greater. I must become less. So you notice it's not an optional kind of perhaps statement that John's putting forward here. Perhaps he might improve, you know, he might become someone great. Perhaps optimistically one day Jesus might slightly become more important in my life. Once he's once I've put off the house, then I'll consider the Jesus claim more serious. Once I've travelled, then Jesus can become Now this is something that must happen, and it must happen now. That Jesus must become greater. I must become less. You believe in the Son, and have eternal life. You don't sort out your life and earn eternal life. You believe and say, He must become greater. I must become less. Or you choose to reject the Son and God's wrath remains on you. I think a lot of people get stuck back where the disciples, followers were in the first paragraph, in our first section with Jesus. Remember back there in the misunderstanding of who Jesus really is? He's a threat, potentially imposing on our way of life and you know, doing the things that we want to do. You might be someone who views Christianity perhaps in that kind of way. Too many things in life you'd have to give up to follow Jesus. Maybe even just one thing that you'd have to stop doing for the sake of following Jesus. Are you willing to say, he must become greater, I must become less? It's what belief in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God looks like. My agenda becomes serving his agenda. I stopped working as a physiotherapist because I believe that verse 36 is true. Hearing about Jesus is more significant than any other news you'll hear. It brings you life by believing in Him and joy in serving Him. 
because he's the eternal son of God and all things are in his hands. Jesus isn't the competition. He wears the crown. Whenever we think someone is a threat, they'll limit our joy and our satisfaction in life. I'll be fearful, anxious. I'll be on the lookout like John's disciples were. But John the Baptist feels joy, complete, overflowing joy. He knows Jesus isn't the competition. Jesus wears the crown. Personally, Jesus hasn't taken the fun out of life for me. I don't come to church out of uh, guilt or duty and obligation. It's where I want to be. Jesus has brought me peace with God, brought me into his family. I know the love of God. I know my value as one of his people. He must become greater. I must become less. Every other option will see you competing against Jesus. You'll continue to be at war with yourself and with others, and most importantly, significantly, with God. The gift from heaven for you is to receive Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the Saviour who has given his life that you might believe and live. He must become greater, I must become less. As you think about your struggles, what are the struggles you'll face in this week ahead? Where are you going to invest? Are you fighting for what you'll look back on at some time in the future, like my plastic trophies? So important now, so important at the time. But when you kind of look back, it's laughable. Our context as the creation means we can't know what the future will bring. I can't know what struggles I'll face in the week ahead, let alone yours. But Jesus has come from heaven and we can have certainty about our future with him. So we're looking to spend our time and to use our energy in a way that he becomes greater, I become less. Let me lead us in prayer that way. Our Heavenly Father, we give you such thanks for sending the Lord Jesus that we might come to know you, believe and live. Give us a right understanding of our context, of our place in creation, of our need for Jesus. Move us to worship him as Lord over all creation. And Father, please use us for your glory. That as we go about our business in the week ahead, whatever that looks like, he becomes greater, I become less. Amen.